0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Rhythms for Thriving Leaders. We're so excited to dive into the, another week of conversation with you. My name is Carrie Lattiser. I'm the founder of New Ground Network and pastor at Community Christian Church, and I get to welcome uh, my co-host, Dr. Winfield Bevins. Some of you know, uh, and in case you don't, he's an author and a teacher who is passionate about helping leaders thrive by promoting healthy rhythms and spiritual and missional practices. He connects those two In his work, he's the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary, co-founder of Missional Formation Coaching. As both a seasoned practitioner and a coach, he frequently speaks at conferences, churches, and seminaries on a variety of topics. And he's the author of several books, including Ever Ancient, Ever New, uh, Marks of a Movement, and is co-author of the soon-to-be-released Healthy Rhythms for Thriving Leaders. We're thrilled to get to learn from him again. Welcome, Winfield. It's good to be here with you.
1: Hey, Carrie. It's great to be here with you today. Um, Just really enjoying the series. Uh, The feedback has been just wonderful. Just leaders, you know, coming together around a conversation around healthy rhythms to kind of during these kind of crazy times. And so it's been really rich and looking forward to today's conversation.
0: Absolutely. I know so many people are navigating this season differently. And I just, I keep hearing feedback that this as a practical resource to help equip leaders has been really beneficial. I'm excited today we get to dive in with Bishop Todd Hunter. And I want to tell you a little bit about Bishop Todd Hunter. He has a lifelong passion to help others heed their call of Jesus to come and follow Jesus, uh, to live their lives in the kingdom of God as Jesus embodied and taught and demonstrated for us. He is the founder. Uh, the founding bishop of the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others, a diocese in the Anglican Church in North America. Bishop Hunter is the past president of Alpha USA, uh, former national director for the Association of Vineyard Churches, retired founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, which means he is a church planter. Uh, He's also author of Christianity Beyond Belief, Following Jesus for the Sake of Others, Giving Church Another Chance, The Out outsider interviews, our favorite sins, and then our character at work. Bishop Hunter holds a doctor of ministry and, and has served as an adjunct professor of evangelism, leadership in contemporary culture and spiritual formation at George Fox University, Fuller Seminary, Western Seminary, and Vanguard University, Azusa Pacifica University, Northern Seminary. I'm an alumni uh, at Beacon College. Yes, go Northern. Uh, he has been a distinguished lecturer at several institutions of higher learning. Bishop Hunter has written articles, written for dictionaries, encyclopedias. We are so thrilled to get to learn from you today. Welcome, Bishop Hunter.
2: Hi, no, seriously, it's my thrill to be here. There, um, Winfield knows, we're just getting to know each other. Winfield knows, church planners are my heroes. Always, <sighs> always have been. I planted my first church when I was 23. I'll be 65 soon so I can't do the math here but like 43 years of having my hands in church planning one way or another so they're my heroes
0: well and you get uh the world that most of our audience is living in right now and then this topic in particular I know we wanted to unpack today non-anxious leadership in an age of anxiety Uh, give us a little bit of the backstory for you how did non-anxious leadership become an area of focus for you
2: yeah, it goes back, Carrie, to when I was the president of Vineyard Churches. <clears throat> and I haven't told this story very often just because it could be inadvertently taken uh, in the wrong way. But in, in this setting, I, I think it's fine to share it. Um, so in the late uh, 80s, the, the Vineyard was taking a turn. We had been self-consciously evangelicals who were discovering the person and work of the spirit. So we were discovering things like the gifts of the spirit and we are discovering healing and prophecy and that sort of thing. Um, and then we got in sort of partnership with um, some other people and somewhere deep in my guts. It's not that I didn't like these people. I, I, I did and do like them. It's not that I think they were bad people. But in my honest view at the time, they were really changing the vineyard from what we were. Hmm. Um, but I, so I have this really one clear memory that's iconic of walking into John Wimber's office. If you don't know, John Wimber was the founder of Vineyard Churches. And at the time I was the the pastor of the Anaheim Church, the big mother church. Um, and I walked into a room where there were all these people who literally were like on the cover of Charisma Magazine and Christianity Today, you know, like, um, like John, uh, John Paul Jackson, uh, Paul Kane, Bob Jones, Jack Deere. Um, I did, I say Paul Kane, Wimber others. And I just have this, this is really iconic moment where I, I just went around that room and thought, well, Paul Kane hears from God more on accident than I do on purpose. John's my, my boss, You know, I just went around, like, denying myself and denying my personhood and just realized that I was a more anxious leader than I thought, Hmm. that I couldn't, like, I remember the thought coming to me, why can't I just stand up straight on the inside and just say what I think as a gentleman? Like, you don't have to be a butthead. Like, why can't I just Hmm. say what I think? Sorry, butthead's a technical term. (laughs) It's, gr- it's Greek yeah. for, a, for a worse word. <laughs> um, and that was a moment that set me on a path of trying to understand my own over attention to the potential reactivity of others. Because mm-hmm. here's the way anxiety works. Sometimes it's real like Winfield was just telling us before we got on that they're in the middle of an ice storm and he's wondering about whether his trees are going to make it. Well, okay. Winfield might be a little anxious about that, but like, that's a reality. You can see the ice on the trees and you can see the branches bending. Well, okay. That's a certain sort of um, reactivity you might say, Mm -hmm. but I was reacting anxiously to things that weren't even real. Right. Mm -hmm. I was projecting how people Mm -hmm. might think of me or what I say or my opinions. And so in that moment, I just, I'm not this good. I'm not this smart. I believe this came from the Holy spirit. I heard this voice in my head say, Todd, okay, there might be things quote wrong in the vineyard right now, but you have to own your reaction to this. And Mm -hmm. that was like a new thought to me. I'd never been to therapy. I didn't speak in therapeutic language, Mm -hmm. Um, but that was a brand new thought to me. And it put me on, um, on the track that I've now been on for 30 some years of, of like trying to understand myself, to own my own stuff, to understand my own reactivity. That's, the, that's what anxiousness is really all about. It's about mm-hmm. reacting to the reactivity of others around us or, or th- things around us. When, when I was really young, Carrie, my, like little, like, I don't know, four, five, six, ten, even that at that age, my mother used to tease me, you're a worry wart. Mm. I don't know exactly what a worry word is. That's kind of a mm-hmm. silent generation term, sure. but I, I knew what it meant. It was a playful way of saying, dang, you worry about any, everything. Like yeah. I was the kind of kid who would not only iron my baseball uniform when I was six or seven years old, I would iron my socks. Wow. Even back in the day when we wore stirrups, no, probably not unless your yeah. mind you do not even know what stirrups are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we you don't see them much in baseball anymore, but I would even iron my stirrups. And so, yeah, I came by this, honestly, Carrie, like this, like my ideas about non-anxious leadership are not theoretical. They really are born out of 30 years of me having to confront my own stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, and that I mean, it's experiential how God invited you into that, but we, we use this term non-anxious leadership. Give us a definition <laughs> or a picture of what yeah. does that mean, non-anxious leadership?
2: Yeah, so I guess I pick it up in several different ways. But the first would be um, some of our listeners are probably aware of uh, a person named Edwin Friedman and his book, A Failure of Nerd. That's a book. I had my first job in ministry when I was 19. And I always say, I wish I would have read that book when I was 19 or even 23 when I started my first church. I didn't read it until uh, somewhere in the 90s. I don't even remember when it was published. But essentially, Friedman is Jewish. was, he's dead now, is a Jewish rabbi. He really helped sort of invent and popularize what we now think of as family systems theory, Mm -hmm. from which we get words, famous words like codependent. Um, Towards the end of his life, though, he took his understanding, his brilliant understanding of systems theory and applied it to the workplace. He became a consultant to Mm -hmm. uh, workplace anxiety. So Friedman's essential theory is, and that I completely buy into, is that what we're looking for is becoming fully differentiated persons, That's what I couldn't be in Wimber's office. I couldn't differentiate Mm -hmm. from those guys. I I don't know why. I I still don't know exactly why. But Friedman says what we want as leaders to fully differentiate is who we are. So think of that again, that doesn't mean become a jerk. It just means things like aware of your temperament, your gift mix, your upbringing, the context of your ministry, your vision, uh, the sort of corporate gift mix of the people you're working with, and then Mm -hmm. just go ahead and fully differentiate about that. Mm -hmm. Like I feel called to Cleveland and I feel called to reach this, these neighborhoods in Cleveland. And I feel like my philosophy of ministry should be X, Y, Z. So you fully differentiate while staying completely meaningfully connected to reality. Mm -hmm. That's Friedman's big thing, fully differentiate, but stay connected as a non-anxious presence. And of course, what he's getting at, if any of you grew up with an alcoholic parent, in my case, I did. I mean, my dad was sort of an alcoholic in terms of drinking, but he was definitely addictive in that he was a radical um, compulsive gambler and, ri- and literally ruined his whole life with compulsive gambling. So, you know, if you grow up in that sort of system, there's one of two things that happen. You either say, well, forget mom or forget dad or forget Uncle Pete, whoever the alcoholic is. I'm never talking to them again, never having anything to do with them. So you disconnect or you get codependent. And you can't differentiate yourself from them. So this is what, this is what Friedman is trying to help us understand and do. How do I really be? I sometimes say, how can I really be my Psalm 139 self? Mm. Right. Before you were knit in your mother's womb, I knew you. I formed you. Mm -hmm. So how can I come to know my Psalm 139 self? Then how can I differentiate as that in that and then stay connected to reality as? non-anxious sort of negative way of putting it a positive way of putting it is how then can I stay connected to the brokenness all around me in, in the sense that I'm an agent of the kingdom and I'm an agent of healing. I'm an agent of goodness, of mercy, of kindness, of generosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the way I think about it from a Friedman sort of way, just quickly from, um, a lot of our listeners probably don't know me and w- wouldn't, or they wouldn't know that probably other than Wimber, the biggest mentor in my life was Dallas Willard. And, And I learned so much from Dallas about this, that every morning before his feet hit the floor, he would literally lay in bed after he woke up. And he would just quickly, for instance, recite to himself Psalm 23. Then he would get up saying, I live my day today in the care of another. Hmm. So for Dallas, the reason any of us who knew Dallas well sure. He was almost always the smartest guy in the room. Yes. He wrote brilliant books. And actually most of his brilliant books, none of us have even read because they were philosophical, but yes, he was almost always the smartest person in the room. But those of us who knew us well, that, yeah, that was impressive, but what really was um, impressive about him was he lived this non-anxious thing way better than any of us have ever known. And so his, his themes were like, well, I'm in the care of another. I don't, I literally don't have to be anxious Mm-hmm. Or he would say, I can abandon outcomes to God. Now, just keeping this real, when was the last time, you know, lots of us met with a core group or a board or a vestry who walked into a meeting thinking, well, I'm going to do my best here, but I'm going to abandon outcomes to God. Now I want to say you cannot become a non-anxious presence until you do get to the place mm-hmm. of doing your best and then abandoning outcomes to God. Dallas used to say to me, Todd, it's like bowling. And he would get like in a bowling stance, you know, where you sort of hold the ball and you wiggle your butt and your shoulders, you know, like picture a amateur bowler, you know, mm-hmm. and then you, you, you stroll up to the line and you do your very best up to that line. And then Dallas says, but once the ball's out of your hand, you just abandon outcomes to God. And I could go on and on quoting those sort of Willard sorts of things. But and I got to throw Peterson in there. Anybody who's read Peterson will know that mm-hmm. Eugene was just very naturally a non-anxious presence. And it comes through in all of his writings. And he, he would have been another mentor of mine. So those are the three influences probably on me.
0: Yeah, that's so great to unpack. And any of you just joining us as we're sitting with Bishop Todd Hunter and Dr. Winfield Bevins talking about what non-anxious leadership looks like. And uh, it was really helpful how you unpacked that differentiation piece. Uh, For most leaders, I think they could attach identity to things like the organization that they lead or the Mm -hmm. success of the organization that they lead. Give us a picture of, you talked about differentiation, so being able to sort of stand and stay connected to yourself and others. How is that different or the same as empathy? Because as leaders, we want to love and care for the people around us, but, but just draw out that distinction for us, if you would.
2: Yeah, I would say over my long career, I've been, I've been overseeing pastors for, I don't know, nearly 40 years. Um, and I would say that people kind of fall off that fence, carry one or two ways. I'll, I represent the first way. I am, one of my greatest gifts is I'm really empathetic. Mm-hmm. Like just naturally, organically, intuitively empathetic. It's actually a great gift. It's, it's mm-hmm. got me a lot of really good places in life. Um, it makes me an easy leader to be around, et cetera. But, and I learned this lesson when I was starting my very first church, I'd put somebody in leadership that I soon realized was wrong and I needed to remove him. And I just couldn't because I'm overly empathetic. Like I, even to this day, almost 65 years old, the hardest decisions I ever have to make are decisions that I know are going to cause someone pain. Sure. So now I've learned over 40 some years to make those hard decisions, but I still pay an emotional price for it because I tend to be overly empathetic, which means it's hard for me to fully differentiate Mm -hmm. um, not only myself, but the good of the whole. One of the biggest Um, challenges of wisdom for anybody leading an organization is that how do you simultaneously care for the one and for Mm -hmm. the whole? Yeah. And so for me, often I, I, I had to struggle to learn to care for the whole because it was so hard for me to deal with the one. Mm -hmm. So I, I would intellectually know that this isn't working. Let's say it was just putting in a small group leader in a brand new church. If you do that in a brand new church, that's actually a pretty big oops. So like I knew I can't let this person keep being a small group leader because they don't have my philosophy of ministry. They don't share my vision. So like I intellectually knew I was a good enough leader, even in my early twenties to know that doesn't work, but I would be so slow in dealing with that because I just couldn't stand causing someone pain. Sure. So I've had to learn over the years how to deal with that. Now, on the other hand, I've known people who are so utterly unempathetic, that they kind of do well caring for the whole, but yeah. their life is littered with people.
0: It's like a graveyard. here. Yeah, like a, <laughs> like a grave. So this is like easier
2: said than done, but I think I think the whole thing of differentiation though is still what's so helpful because it allows you. It's the only space from which you can stand. I think to even make those hard decisions of how do I balance. What's good for the one versus what's good for the whole? And how do I simultaneously care for the one and care for the whole? I want to say quickly, it can be done, by the way. It sometimes seems impossible, but it actually is possible to care well for both. It's just that our temperaments make us fall off on one side or the other. Like using the word of the day, butthead. Some of us are naturally (laughs) butthead. That's
1: yeah, new word of the and, day.
2: Yeah, that's the new word of the day. And so people so individuals might experience this that way, but the organization itself being a non-bodily, it's not a person. So mm-hmm. the organization itself sort of feels solid and healthy, but the people in or around it, so see what I mean? So the people if you're a butthead, you might not feel anxious, but you put anxiousness in the system. Sure. Because once you have enough people around you who've been hurt by you and people talk. You know, I've had a lot of leaders say to me, why am I always the last one to know something? And I always say, because you're a jerk and no one wants to tell you the truth. Now, see, that's how you kind of you're not living out of your own anxiety, but you're creating anxiety in the system Mm -hmm. by, um, you know, people by getting the reputation of he or she or she doesn't really care about us. They only care about their vision or whatever.
1: Sure. Todd, I think what's interesting about this is, again, this is probably a new concept for a lot of leaders, this idea of well differentiation, because, again, you're talking about these kind of two polar extremes. Oftentimes, the leaders are either too involved or they're just so disconnected. But the whole kind of concept that Friedman puts forward is this this idea of remaining separate but being connected. Right. Um, And and in so doing, we're able to lead in a non-anxious way. And it gets into, I think what's fascinating about it, the implications of this can be applied to dysfunctional family systems, yeah. um, dysfunctional organizations, right. ie churches or nonprofits or whatever you know organization a Christian leader might lead. But also theres there's national, and I think that's what's interesting about Friedman's work. He talks about political. Um, mm-hmm. stress that happens to an institution of having, right. you know, anxiety and leadership and how that affects people, it kind of those different stratus of, you know, different mm-hmm. social kind of uh, interactions. And so maybe talk a little bit about that. Like so family and church. Um mm-hmm. this idea of differentiating even between that. Oh,
2: I see. Between yeah. Well I think if I if I understand your point here, um yeah, I I learned in a um uh, a, um, a kind of a, a, funny way, um, to, <clears throat> sorry, somebody, I got to turn my notifications off there. <laughs> somebody's, somebody's yeah. trying to get in my face there. Um, <clears throat> I learned from before I was an Anglican, um, I discovered Celtic daily prayer. Some of you may know that Northumbria community and their prayer book is somewhat similar to the book of common prayer. And in that um, in that prayer book for evening or for Compline is a prayer that says, um, my dear ones, oh, God, bless thou and keep them in every place where they are. And so for a couple of decades now, I've been praying this prayer where I'll just say my dear ones. And then I name Debbie, my wife, and I name Jonathan, my son and Carol, my daughter. And it's just a little moment for me to pray for them. But I think what it's done over the years, Winfield, if I'm understanding your question, it's allowed me to realize that they are my dear ones. It doesn't mean the people in the ministries I'm overseeing aren't my dear ones. Like when I was the pastor of the Vineyard Anaheim, we had like 130 people on staff, and you know, because it was a big church, like six, seven thousand people. Um, and 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 there's a sense in which they were my dear ones, but they weren't like my dear ones. Mm-hmm. So there is a sense in which we do have to um, um, self-identify with that nuclear family. But again, for the sake of therefore being able to stay connected to what is a really complex ministry setting. And, and by the way, um, I don't mean to say that being the, you know, sort of co-pastor with John of a megachurch, church, I don't mean to say, well, that's complex. I mean, it is, but a church plant is every bit as complex. It's just complex in a different way. Mm-hmm. Wimber used to say to me, Todd, it's just zeros. He said, I used to have to learn to trust God for a hundred bucks. And then I had to learn to trust him for a thousand bucks. and I learned to trust him for a hundred thousand bucks and a million bucks. It's just zeros. But the internal processes are exactly the same. The sense of feeling vulnerable is the same human emotion walking into a staff meeting of two people or walking into a staff meeting as I did with every week with 130 people. The human processes inside of the same. So, yeah, I think it's super important for church planners and ministers to also differentiate within that, you know, nuclear family. But again, you don't do it as a way to set up a rival. You do it as a way to being a, a healthy person who then can engage with the complexity of ministry. Obviously, you know, the brilliant person on this is not me. It's Pete Scazzaro.
1: Yeah. But we're interviewing him in a couple of weeks. Yeah, he's he's, yeah ask Pete that question. He's the master uh, on that well, question.
0: <laughs> we've, we've said a couple of terms here, Todd, that might be great to unpack that I think really tie into this too in the idea of non anxious leadership and mm-hmm. the nece- necessity to have differentiation. But you talked about the activity also. And so yeah. there's there's a self-awareness piece that you must have gone on a journey on. I wonder when people hear that word, if they even totally know what reactivity means, but what does that mean to be aware of reactivity in ourselves? Sometimes that can yeah. come from family of origin or right. That gets developed mm-hmm. in us, but give us a little yeah. bit of reactivity.
2: Well, in his book, <clears throat> Friedman calls it sabotage. And I don't use the word very often because it, it sounds harsh. <laughs> this, this is all he really means. Um, If I say, um, let's say I live in San Francisco and I say I'm flying to Boston, someone could go, well, what the heck are you doing that for? Why aren't you going to Hawaii? Like, what kind of idiot would go to Boston? Why aren't you going to Hawaii? Well, see, that's reactivity to the articulation of a vision. And this is what I would like all the young leaders who are listening here today, especially if you're planting. You cannot say, I'm going to Cleveland or New York or um, Denver and say, I'm gonna execute on this philosophy of ministry. Here it is, X, Y, and Z. And this is our vision. These are our values. These are gonna be our priorities. This is our philosophy of ministry. You cannot say that without people reacting to it. Somebody is gonna react to it. And so what Friedman is wondering is who are the leaders who can articulate a vision for a preferable future, which means the present isn't ideal. Mm -hmm. So that alone is a scary thing to say to people.
0: It's disruptive.
2: Yeah, it is disruptive. So if you say, um, you know, I'm going somewhere and like you put a bullseye on a wall and say, this is my vision and values and philosophy of ministry. This is my sense of mission. Well, people are going to react to it. Mm -hmm. And what Friedman wants us to do is not react to the emotional reactivity of others. He doesn't mean hate them. He doesn't mean put them down. He doesn't mean dismiss them. He means, don't you react to it? Because if you start reacting to it, it will be sabotage. It will, it will end up actually harming you from getting where you say God wants you to go. So here's the needle we're trying to thread. You can't say simultaneously, God wants me to go here and then react to all the sabotage. Cause then you're disobeying God. But nor can you just be a jerk to the reactivity. You have to patiently teach. Mm-hmm. You, uh, Wimber used to say to me, Todd, if you're not sick of casting your vision, when I was a church planner in 1979, John okay. used to say, if you don't cast your vision so much that you get sick of the sound of your own voice, you're not doing it enough. Yeah. So you just have to patiently teach, patiently re-articulate vision and values and priorities and practices, patiently explain philosophy of ministry. Sure, you should listen to people. And there there is the occasional time where, let's say, like I moved from Southern California, the beach, you know, sort of the beach vibe of Southern California. My first church plant was in a place called Wheeling, West Virginia. Well, I might as well have gone to Mars. Your
0: so, flip flops didn't go over well. In one
2: yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I wore flip flops and Hawaiian shirt my first days there because we moved there in September and it was still hot. Yeah. Literally, people would stop on the street and stare at me mm-hmm. in 1979 in Wheeling, West Virginia, with me wearing flip flops <laughs> and Hawaiian shirts and shorts. But as local people explained my context, for instance, or they explained to me the history or the demographic makeup or the psychographic makeup of Wheeling? Yes, I could take that on so I could find ways to part. This is, I think, the needle we're trying trying to thread. How do we find ways to partner with local contextual knowledge without giving up on what we say is the vision, values and mission, et cetera, you know, philosophy, ministry from God. Mm -hmm. And again, it's easier said than done, but it's impossible to do if you can't, as I said, when we started, stand up straight on the inside. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is this is who I am. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I do have someone asking a question in the chat, and I want to yeah. make sure we get this right. And to anyone else who's joining us, feel free to put your questions in the chat. We would love the opportunity to dive into those. The Friedman book you're referring to is Failure of Nerve. Is that a right? Fa-
2: a Failure of Nerve.
0: Right. Failure of Nerve. Okay. Right. We've got somebody interested in picking that one up.
2: Oh, um, yeah. You got to pick that up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great read.
2: And even if you don't, sorry, Carrie, but if you don't, if you don't have time to read a whole book, actually you don't have to, if you can go find just a good review of the book and actually online, there's one of those like five minute videos where somebody's drawing on a whiteboard and he explains Friedman. Mm-hmm. Actually you can pick up the principles just by reading a good review or watching that little video or something. Yeah. Um, if you don't have time to read a 300 page book.
0: It's dense one too, but it's, yeah. it's worth the time. Start yeah. with the infographic yeah. video. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we could talk for just a minute about what some of the signs of anxious leadership look like. And I think it's a really interesting conversation because if if we're not cautious about it, our leadership can be built on creating anxiety, right? If most often it's about getting better or growing bigger or mm-hmm. solving problems or fixing a crisis. And so I, I think quickly of a pastor that I coached out on the West coast who said he didn't even realize that he struggled with anxiety and leadership until he, he would bite the side of his tongue when he got anxious. Mm. And he didn't know that was an anxious response until it got so bad. He Mm. couldn't teach on the weekends because it was swollen and he had like Mm. sores from it. And he didn't even know he was anxious. Like he was that disconnected. And as he saw some of those physical symptoms learned, oh, all these things I feel, these things that are happening in me are actually Mm. anxiety. And so So it it put him on a path towards doing stuff about that. But just give us some insight into what anxiety in leadership looks like and perhaps how to avoid not building the need, like people's need for us on anxiety and leadership.
2: Yeah. Well, first, let me respond to what you said about, you know, some people kind of learn to use anxiety. I mean, this is this is I think this is mostly a political term, but it could be also a business like CEO sort of term. Um, there's this old saying that says never waste a good crisis. Mm-hmm. And because what good change agents know is that when people are feeling crisis, they're the most open to change than they are at any other time in their life. So you're right, Carrie, some leaders, I'm not saying they do this consciously, but some yeah. consciously will actually create reoccurring crisis so that they can get done what they want done. And then again, I would just want to say, okay, it's effective. You got what you want done, but you actually created an anxious corporate culture, mm-hmm. which long-term is a loser. Mm -hmm. So you get some short term gain by creating a crisis, but it's a long term, long term loser because you get known as the person who created crisis. You don't get known as the effective leader who gets things done. You get known as the the person who creates crisis wherever you go. Sure. You know, like, you you know, you walk into a room and, you know, you just sort of create crisis. Um, All right. So to answer your question another way. Yes, there are some bodily things. And again, Carrie, I learned this the hard way. Again, when we lived in Wheeling, uh, my wife, Debbie, and I had a hard time both getting pregnant and staying pregnant. Um, we finally, Debbie was pregnant. She got like seven months in, looked like we were losing the baby. Um, she had to go to the hospital. And I just, that, those were the first moments in my life where I got TMJ. Do you guys all know what TMJ is? It's a joint, you know, in your jaw. Mm-hmm. And I started getting really bad pain in my jaw and that was me, like your friend with the biting the tongue. Sure. I didn't even know how anxious I was until I started and, and TMJ pain can be excruciating. It can be like sciatica in your back. And um, that was my first like bodily realization. Mm-hmm. Uh, others will feel it, a tightness in their neck. Others will feel a tightness in their shoulders. Other people, their backs, they'll, they'll get periodic back aches and wonder why. Um, we actually carry a lot of stress and anxiety in our hips mm-hmm. and people will find themselves sort of waddling and don't really realize why. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are bodily ways that alert us to pre-conscious or subconscious anxiety. Because again, what happens with church planners, I mean, it can happen with anybody, anybody running a small business, a church planner, anybody like that is that our days are so in our face that we lose ourselves. Um, that's why we're not aware of biting our tongue mm-hmm. or my whole life. I've shaken, shook my legs. I don't know how many thousands of times my wife has patted my leg and said, would you please stop it? You're shaking the whole table or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all indications of preconscious or subconscious anxiety, uh, manifesting in our body. Unfortunately, Carrie, it also manifests itself in our leadership behaviors. Most people I know over the years who are kind of control freaks are because they are medicating either conscious or subconscious fear or anxiety or insecurity. Mm -hmm. Um, The people I know who routinely manipulate to get their way, almost always you can track it down to some sort of anxious insecurity. Yeah, it's Um, fear
0: or insecurity or anxiety underneath that need to control or manipulate.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm saying fear and insecurity often producing anxiety that then then, then produces those behaviors. Because we think that those behaviors will keep us from the fearful thing we anticipate. Mm Or, Sorry, no, go ahead.
0: No, please go ahead. No, yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting in this moment when you frame it that way, I can have empathy for those those leaders that I yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than like yeah. frustration with them, even just hearing yeah. that, so yeah. Yeah,
2: and I, I, again, I've known a lot of leaders who, um, who aren't aware that they really lead via anger and mm-hmm. they just know how to use anger in the right way to win an argument, to get their way in a meeting. Um, and again, just aren't aware of, how much that makes a system then toxic. And, you know, we're sort of back here to Scissero again, or who wrote the, uh, oh, the book, the shoot, the five. Dysfunctions of a team. Yeah, that, yeah, we're we're sort of into that now. We're into that realm. Only here we're talking about what is the enzyme that creates that toxicity. Mm -hmm. And often what creates that toxicity, the enzyme are the behaviors of an anxious leader. So in the same way that our, Anxiety affects our physical body. If we practice anxiety, it's actually leadership malpractice Mm -hmm. because anxious leadership, again, will almost always come out in controlling, manipulating anger, dishonesty. Like why would somebody fudge in a board meeting? Because they're afraid of something. Sure. And fear is just a really bad master. Mm -hmm. So first you feel fear, like a concrete fear, oh, I could be found out here that the the youth numbers are down. Mm -hmm. Something just that simple. And I'm the senior pastor and I don't want the board. And so in that moment, you find yourself fudging the numbers on what's happening really in the youth. Well, what's underneath that? Probably not that he or she is some horrific, no character liar. It's just that in that moment, their anxiety overrides their will. Now, can I have a moment here to just talk about this? I think this is really important. Um, Willpower alone never works because our wills are constantly badgered by our thoughts and feelings. The major biblical story for this is Peter denying Jesus. When Peter states, I believe with his whole heart, I don't believe Peter was in the slightest degree lying or fudging when he said to Jesus, if everybody else deserts you, I won't. I believe Peter meant that with his whole heart. Almost brings me to tears. But Jesus knows that Peter's will isn't going to stand in the moment of anxiety. Jesus Mm -hmm. knows. Mm -hmm. And so he says, Now, Peter, actually, I'm sorry to tell you, dude, but before the cock crows three times tonight, you will deny me three times. But the other thing Peter doesn't know is Jesus also knows, you know, John 20, John 21, I'll see you on the beach and this moment will be healed and you will be recommissioned and you will be sent. But in that moment, Jesus knows that Peter's thoughts and feelings are going to overwhelm his will. Mm -hmm. And that's why these feelings of anxiety, they overwhelm the will of an otherwise good person who's not a liar, but gets stuck in a moment of, oh, well, I would never fudge the youth numbers and then finds himself or herself fudging the youth numbers because they're precisely reacting out of what they're feeling is kind of an acute anxiety that actually makes them act out of what is normally their vision for themselves of being a truly good person. Mm -hmm.
0: So good. Dr. Bevins, give us some insight onto that as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the things in my mind is, you know, I'm thinking in terms of listeners, you know, maybe maybe you've touched on some things that people are like, hey, you're pressing on kind of something I'm, I'm, I've am i been feeling and haven't even recognized. Maybe the biting of the tongue thing or, you know, the kind of the gnawing of the clenching, teeth, you know, your, clenching yeah. your teeth and yeah. Um, What I would love to hear, and you've written several books on this. Um, You've you've written a number of books on practices. You've hung out. You've been mentored by Dallas Willard and others. Um, Kind of what I would love to hear, what are some practices, you know, as as leaders that are maybe listening to this, saying to themselves, all right, yes you found me out like (laughs) guilty yes what 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 can i do how how can i how can i get help you mentioned Schizera's work which is great emotionally healthy leader what are some core practices maybe in your own life um, that you kind of put in kind of coming out of that experience um, from the vineyard over the last few Mm -hmm. years what are a couple core practices that you have found helpful
2: I think the big idea and the simple idea is to just have a rhythm to your life. So think of like the, a grandfather clock, you know, with the tick tock of a, of a grandfather clock. And then now just picture with me one of the synoptics, let's take Luke where, you know, I love Luke because he sees Jesus as a son of man and he's sort of interested in Jesus humanity. So think of Jesus. he's shut in and then he goes out in public He's praying, he's preaching, he has a secret life, he has a public ministry. He's in quote, the closet, he's in the streets. He's being still, he's an activist. Until at some point you get to Luke 11 and the disciples finally say, Jesus, what the heck are you doing when you split? Why do you split? What are you doing? What they actually say is the Lord teaches to pray. But what they're really asking is what the heck are you doing when you split? And I think, so what I've had, what I've tried to do is um, create a rhythm for myself. So this is what I actually do. Like, I'm just being totally straight with you guys. Um, Again, saying things that I wouldn't normally say, but, you know, with God as my witness, this is actually how I live. In the mornings, in morning prayer, I dedicate myself and my day to the Lord. And that's a really big deal to me. Like, I seriously dedicate myself. Sometimes I'll get out my phone and um, I'll look at my day and, like, dedicate myself even to certain meetings, to certain conversations. I, like, just, I give myself. And I ask for the Spirit to be with me. Um, I'll often pray, um, Lord, as I go through my day, let the, I, I'll touch my mouth, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, the thoughts of my mind. May they be acceptable in your sight. So I, I dedicate my day then I go through my day and this is very Peterson mixed with Ignatian spirituality. I go through my day then trying to notice the presence of God moment by moment. So as, so I dedicate the whole day to God in the morning, but then as I go through the day, you know, if I pulled up my calendar on my phone and we could, you know, see the the events and people of my day, as I go through those, I dedicate myself to it. So before getting on this zoom call, I asked God to fill me with the spirit and to give me the gifts I needed to be truly present to you, that this wouldn't just be one other thing, but that I would truly be present to you and that I'd be truly present to his spirit so that I could say things that are customized for you. Um, Because I've come to trust that I have all this stuff in my head and my heart. Um, I've come to trust over 45 years that You know, I'm a decent communicator, so I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. What I have to worry about is make sure I'm here, not in the next meeting or that I'm not sitting here reacting to the meeting that just happened because somebody said something that hurt my feelings or whatever. So I'm telling you, everything you know about examine, if you don't know much about Ignatian examine um, Ignatian spirituality, I would find out. If you haven't read much Peterson I would I, or brother Lawrence or any of the people who just teach you how to practice the presence of God mm-hmm. so dedication practicing the presence and then at night I do examine I do do Ignatian examine mm-hmm. where I I reflect on my day trying to notice where I felt desolation or where I might have felt anxious processes and then you just talk to God about it like well that's weird Lord I really did feel anxious in that moment or Lord why was I afraid in that moment and you just deal with it in a very girlish, boyish, childlike way. It's not a big, heavy, judgmental thing. It's just you and your Lord who loves you more than you can imagine. Um, And just saying, wow, Lord, I really noticed that that, wow, that was a little burst of anger. Like, where did that come from? Why did I feel that burst of anger? Mm -hmm. And then you notice the times of consolation where you felt the goodness and the nearness and the presence of God and his gifts or fruit. Um, So that's my essential Rhythm, Winfield. That I, mm-hmm. the way I try to practice this, and then, I, as I said, throughout the day, I have these little prayers. I pray, like probably before we got on here, I prayed, uh, Lord, in this Zoom meeting, make me a gracious, generous, generative presence. Um, I often pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. I very often pray, Come, Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I very often pray, Come, Good Shepherd. Like as I go through my day, I just pray these little. Mm. Prayers that bring me back to center. And after you practice it for a while, it's really not spiritual rocket science. After you practice it for a while, it, it just does have the effect of reshaping you body, soul, spirit, mind, will, heart, emotions, thoughts. And sort of like a great athlete, like since we just had the Super Bowl, probably when Tom Brady gets out of bed, he doesn't have to worry about how to throw a spiral. Well, why? Because he's become the kind of person who can. Now, it might take a split second of, you know, uh, of mental work to embody what his body can do. But what I'm trying to give you a vision for is that, again, I'm nowhere near perfect. But in those moments where I might be feeling inadequate Mm. and I say, come Holy Spirit. Well, my body reacts to that. My whole being reacts to that because over a period of decades of praying those sorts of prayers, it's able to bring me back to a competency, if you know what I mean. I, I hope, you, I'm not trying to brag in any way, I'm just trying to be real, that, that I feel all the same temptations and I feel, all this, I feel all the same temptations to controlling, manipulating, being anger or being dishonest that anybody else has. But over a period of decades, I've just come to learn to notice what they are, where they're probably coming from. And in these little just snippets of prayers, I'm able to bring myself back to um, a different sort of place. Again, not perfectly, but most of the time. It's
1: the power of rhythm. I mean, that's the whole point of the show, isn't it, Carrie? We're we're talking about healthy rhythms for leaders, and kind of one of the biggest challenges I think leaders are facing right now is whatever rhythms you had a year ago. Yeah, it's all been disrupted. Yeah, uh, I came across literally last night a quote from Jim Collins, who you know we all know good to great. Mm-hmm. He says, there is, and this is from several years ago, and I kind of read this in light of where we are now. He says, there it will be no new normal. Uh, we're now dealing with a world that's going to be ferocious. Mm-hmm. fatalities, the turbulence, the uncertainties of the world will probably define the second half of my life. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea of well-differentiated leadership from Friedman is we do live in an uncertain kind of chaotic world where we're mm-hmm. in kind of in a liminal space. We don't know what things are going to look like in a year. Uh, And we can't, I, I think that's the other thing that I'm hearing from this Todd is we have no control on what's going on out there. The only thing we can control is what's going on in here. And that's why we need these healthy rhythms and practices. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, as you were sharing probably outside of the Lord's Prayer, which is an amazing prayer that you should learn and pray with your family. That's one of the practices that my family and I do regularly. Um, Psalm 23. But something that's been really helpful, probably second to the Lord's Prayer, uh, most popular prayer I would guess in the world is the serenity prayer. Yeah. And it's so practical. It's so simple. Yeah. And oftentimes we kind of chuck it off as if it's for you know just alcoholics. Mm -hmm. But the simplicity of that, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change Mm -hmm. and give me the wisdom um, and, you know, to know what I can't change, the courage to, you know, to change them and to know the difference between the two. That's really, I think, as you get, like, real practical where Mm -hmm. the kind of the the boots on the ground, we're talking about simple rhythms of giving um, the anxiety of the world back over to God. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it feels a bit like chicken and egg, I think, Winfield, but there's no better way of being a non-anxious leader than abandoning outcomes to God. Hmm. But what makes it feel like a chicken and egg is how does an anxious person do that? And I would just say you practice it, practice it in small ways, practice it in hidden ways. And as you get good at it, you'll be able to practice it in more and more, ever, ever more important, ever more crucial settings. Mm The other thing I thought of Winfield is that I hadn't said what Jim Collins is saying, but I have to say that in my guts, I've been feeling it. And so I guess I would say today that I agree with him. I, I just think, you know, we've, a lot of us have been thinking it's normal. I don't mean to say any of us are dumb. I, I think we all have been thinking that, well, when the, when the pandemic's over or well, when the election cycle's over and now here we are February 11th. And we're still dealing with possibly really explosive um, public political stuff. Um, There's all the vaccine um, cynicism. There's honest wondering about the vaccine and just like, is this suddenly going to be over? Like like I don't want to put words in Colin's mouth, but it's likely he's wondering about things like the global economy, um, the next virus that could happen. Um, he's, he's unlikely um, wondering about the global rise of populism. Um, populism is a, is a really big uh, thing that humanity is gonna have to conquer. Um, uh, refugees and immigration is not going away anytime soon. So again, I know this sounds really negative, but I say all that just to say, what I would um, suggest, Winfield, is something that I've learned from athletics Um, But but I think it also applies to artists of various kinds is when you feel like you're being driven, when you feel like your insides are being driven out of control by exterior factors that you can't control. Right. That's what Winfield was talking about. We all feel that from time to time, sometimes every day. When we feel that, what do we do? I would say two things. Get small and go slow. Now, here's what I mean. I'm sorry for the athletic metaphors, but like, I think of golfers, but again, I'm sure this will be true of actors and actresses and stuff, but just, I don't come out of that artistic world. But like when a golfer has a putt to win, let's say $2 million and the masters of the U S open or whatever, you know what they do? They don't think about the putt itself. They don't think about the consequences of the putt. They get excruciatingly small. Uh, how do my hands feel in the grip? How are my feet feeling? Um, they get excruciatingly small. They go through highly detailed pre-shot routines and stuff. They get small in order to deal with the mag- with the what's the word the magnitude. Uh, thank you. The magnitude of this putt that millions of people are watching on TV and that will literally change your place in the history of golf. Like you can't be thinking about that and execute. And so for us you actually can't be thinking about that and be present to people praying for them. You can't you can't be conscious of the magnitude of something and teach well. You you can't be the conscious of the magnitude of something and lead a board meeting well. Like you have to make yourself present to that moment. And the way to do it is like get small, like bring it down to something that you know you can actually execute on. And then go slow. <clears throat> Same thing, thinking of golfers. Um, When it's a really big moment, you know what golfers do? They make themselves walk slower. Mm. Mm. And they make themselves breathe slower. There's something really important about get small, go slow. That's actually the way to deal with big things. Um, And I was talking athletically, but actually Peterson has, uh, and, uh, you know, now and others have written about this. It's again, it's the same thing of how can I be like sort of magically? I want to say, what do I mean by that? Um, How can I, how can I, I don't know, like magically be present to this moment Mm -hmm. and working on the ways that would let you do that? Because that banishes anxiety 99% of the time. Yeah. Just being present to what's real, not what you fear will be real in five minutes not what you're reacting to five minutes or five days ago, but like in this moment, um, this is not a Willard quote. I think it's Willard quoting somebody else, but, um, it goes like this in this moment, I have God Mm -hmm. and I don't know about tomorrow, but if I can stay present to the moment, God is in the present moment. God is actually not in our hand wringing about the past. And God is not in our anxious fears about the future. God is in the present moment. And if we can stay present to the moment, we will have Christ. We'll have the presence of the spirit. And that will go with us into the moments that are to come. And the moments that are to come are often not what we predict them to be there's something different. And so we just, we, we want to just sort of stay like, this is me, this is God. We just want to sort of stay connected into the, into the future. And the way to do that are these rhythms. And I just want to say, you know, I've suggested rhythms of mine. You need to find your own. It's completely cool. You actually, it's not just cool. It's required because I have a certain temperament and gift mix and context and role roles, plural. Um, everybody's different and you should feel completely free to find rhythms that really work for you. And they're going to change. I mean, the rhythms that work for uh, a young mom who just had twins are very different than uh, a woman who's 49 and both the kids just finally left the house and went to college. And so you just need to be good, totally good with that. Um, Like don't compare yourself to other people's rhythms, just find your own and be, and be sort of ruthlessly pragmatic about it. Find your own rhythms that actually work, not things that you think should work or could work or that some experts said should work. Mm -hmm. But but just be honest about your own soul. Is this is this rhythm really feeding me? Like, For instance, if you find out walking and listening to a podcast is replenishing to your soul, well, then don't judge yourself. And if you find that going out and sitting in the backyard and quiet and watching the birds replenishes your soul and makes you notice God and others and love God and your neighbor, then don't apologize for it. Like find your thing. Cause it's probably going to change every six months or a year anyway. Yeah.
0: The key takeaway that I'm hearing again and again is how that the practice of engaging in these rhythms is what prepares us, no matter what comes in the future. I love even that imagery you had of like the hand wringing Mm -hmm. of the past or white knuckling about the future. But when we just open our hands and are present to this moment, we can experience it. And I think what is surprising, as I've seen leaders on this journey, is that that increases how dynamic the experience is. When you're present mm-hmm. to the moment, that's the good and the bad, but it yeah. turns up the ability to experience joy and happiness mm-hmm. and love in deeper ways. And it turns up the volume on sadness or grief or frustration. Right. So that being present to it, I have a question in the chat I want to ask yeah. you. Uh, someone just said, any practical tips that you would have on how leaders can actually share their leadership anxiety with those around them? What's the right level of vulnerability? What does that look yeah, that's
2: like? That's a really great. Us? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, thank you for that. Um, you do have to be careful about that. I, I would, um, I would think of a constellation. Like you probably ought to have a spiritual director <clears throat> who you could be most vulnerable to. And it could, it could also be a therapist, but I don't mean like, you know, you're, you're not, you need to go see a therapist. I don't mean that. But depending on what's happening in your life, could be a therapist, but a spiritual director. And if not that, just like a really close spiritual friend. And that would be different maybe than um, the chairman of your board or something who you have a trusting relationship or a key person on your staff. So I think you have to have a consolation of people around you and And those people should not be shared with equally. I don't think Um, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not fair to them. Um, You know, there's a difference between being honest and or secret versus like dumping on somebody who doesn't have the capacity to hold what you're dumping. Sure. So I I think we do have to be a little careful about that. And I think we want to avoid the extremes. We don't want to become dumpers who barf all over everybody, but nor do we want to be people who hide. Mm -hmm. So I've just always found it best. Like I talk a certain way to my coaches and mentors. I talk a different way to my spiritual director. I talk a different way to my wife. I talk a slightly different way to maybe my executive assistant. In all cases, I'm trying to be, I'm never being dishonest. Um, But honesty does not require saying everything you ever think Mm -hmm. Uh, on a mature honesty requires a discernment Mm -hmm. about what to say to who when so a constellation of people who you can share with on various levels Mm -hmm. seems healthy to me.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. I have one more question from the chat yeah. here. I'm going to run by you. Um, and I'm going to give a plug for your book as part of the answer to this. But okay. how would you transition from one practice or rhythm to another, recognizing a change is needed? How would you mm. coach someone to find a new one? While you think about your answer, I want to point people towards our character at work, which is the spiritual formation for leaders resource that you've created. And you have another book coming out. I'm not sure if that fits here, but give us some coaching on changing a rhythm as you sense one is needed.
2: Yeah. Um, again, that feels to me like a combination of childlikeness and a kind of a ruthless honesty. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I trust Winfield implicitly. He won't tell on me, but like sometimes I don't do the formal daily offices of morning and evening prayer there. So there's seasons. Well, well, you know what, something you said earlier, Carrie, um, another weakness I've had my whole life is I don't lament. Well, I, my, my top strengths on like strength finders are positivity, (laughs) optimism. I don't lament well. And when the whole pandemic thing hit and then we got into the summer with the race things and then the fall with all the political stuff we've all been dealing with. I just spent a lot of the last few months in Psalms and I don't apologize for it Mm -hmm. because I needed, I knew I needed to learn to repent I'm sorry to lament and the yeah. Psalms are just full of lament and learning to cry out to God. And that does not come easy to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I answered the question other than saying, that's an example of something sure. where for a time I would set aside or maybe, you know, minimize something to maximize something that I felt like the spirit was leading me to do. Yeah. And now, now that I know this looks like it's going to drag out for a while, I'm actually going back to the Psalms again. Mm-hmm. So I guess it comes down to noticing your own soul, a, and then b, trying to discern what would be replenishing. That those are probably the steps of, sure. of then coming to something something new.
0: Sure. I know one of the things that we want to do every episode that we're together is equip listeners with a practical tool or resource or next step. And so uh, we've done a couple of those the last few weeks. Dr. Bevins, would you give us one this week, just as we conclude our time, a a resource someone could hold on to? Yeah,
1: I think as we close out, you know, I would encourage everyone to check out um, Todd's books. He's written a number of books on practices as well. There's one um, that I I particularly appreciated on, um, what is it, Rediscovering the giving church another chance giving church another chance there's some some great um content in there about christian practices that many leaders i think will find really helpful friedman's book failure of nerves very significant one of the previous practices um, that we did share was the daily examine um we can make that available as well i think that's one of the things that i heard from todd's kind of personal daily in some ways you're 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 practicing that throughout the day you're practicing Mm -hmm. presence of God throughout the day I love that get small go slow Uh, one of the things that I do in terms of like working with ministry leaders is it it builds on kind of coming from the the practical theology discipline and we've shared this before is a lot of leaders especially in this moment uh, we've we felt like we got to react to everything you know like you know, I got to react on Twitter. And I've seen so many leaders get themselves in trouble saying something that if they had just reflected and pondered on it, maybe they would have worded it differently or. And I think this is actually has been a season where the Lord's calling us to be reflective leaders mm. rather than reactive. Yeah, Um And it doesn't mean we don't respond and we don't react, but we begin with deep spiritual reflection. And that's what that daily examine does. And so there's four questions, and we'll send this out, um, that I think leaders can apply this to their life, to maybe challenges in their ministry context or vocation. Also challenges in terms of what's going on in the country and the world today. And here are the four questions. Super simple. One is, what is going on? What is going on? What's going on here? Um, Two, why is it going on? Three, what ought to be going on? And then four, how might we respond? So see that it begins with the reflection to evaluate what's going on here? Why is it going on? What What ought to be going on? And then based on these, how should I respond? And I think developing that type of reflective practice to your life, to your ministry context, and then how you respond to what's going on in the world around you will help you be a a, a better, well-differentiated leader. So we'll send that out this week. Um, Todd, thanks so much for um, joining us. Thank you,
2: Winfield. Carrie, good to see you. I wish I could see all of our guests, but um, love you dearly. Glad to be with you.
0: Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you back here soon.